Econ Talk is a weekly economics podcast that has been going for a decade. On Econ Talk, host Russ Roberts brings on writers, intellectuals, and entrepreneurs for engaging conversations about the world as seen through the lens of economics. Russ Roberts is today's guest, and it is a treat because I have been listening to Econ Talk since 2006, and it was a central point of inspiration for what Software Engineering Daily has become, which is the world through the lens of software and software engineering. So on this episode, we talk about how software impacts the world economically, from Bitcoin's promise of zero-cost transaction to the opportunities and regulatory challenges of the software-enabled gig economy to self-driving cars. It's really an engaging conversation that was really a treat for me. Uh, Before we get to that episode, some quick announcements. One, if you're interested in working on Software Daily, you can check out this project at softwaredaily.com. We are building an open source news and information site about software. And if you're a web developer and you have some spare time, check out the repo. Also, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com where you can find things like the Slack channel, my Twitter account, my email if you want to send me some feedback or some criticism. You can also sign up for Software Weekly, our weekly newsletter. Um, It's really building into a community about software engineering, and I hope you'll check it out. Russ Roberts is the host of Econ Talk, a weekly economics podcast. Russ, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Great to be with you, Jeff. I started listening to Econ Talk about a decade ago, and around that time, I was an online poker player. And because my economic worldview was centered on the poker world, when I would listen to Econ Talk, it would expose me to concepts that Sometimes it would confirm the zero-sum nature of poker, but other times it would challenge that nature. And now, a decade later, I'm doing software engineering, and I find that the same thing is the case. I have a worldview about how software frames economics, and when I listen to EconTalk, sometimes that worldview is shared by you, and other times it's entirely challenged. And the importance of a worldview when it comes to a big topic like economics, I don't think can really be understated. So when you started Econ Talk, you had one particular worldview. How has that worldview changed since you started the show? Well, I have to say it's been an incredible intellectual journey for me, and I don't know what it's like for listeners who started with me back in 2006, like yourself, and came forward and just were exposed to the ideas that I'm exposed to every week. When you do that, uh, first, it keeps your brain alive. So that's one of the things I'm really grateful for. The opportunity to talk to smart people every single week is just uh, amazing stimulus to ideas, thinking, and connections. Uh, But as an economist, talking to different people across the ideological spectrum and across different topics, I've had to confront a lot of things in my own worldview that, that I realized weren't as reliable as I thought. I had to reconsider some of my ideas and other ideas I, you know, I've kind of held to pretty tightly. So if I were going to divide up, uh, try to make a list of the things that haven't changed, I would do do that first. I would say I'm still pretty uh, focused on the fact that incentives matter. They're not the only thing that matters, but they they matter a lot. Uh, So prices matter. Uh, Our egos and pride and shame, these are all prices we pay when or rewards we receive. So I think people respond to those incentives in in powerful ways. It's a useful way to think about human behavior. At the same time, when they make decisions uh, alongside other people, what we call markets, uh, that complex arrangement of buyers and sellers – or people interacting in other ways, uh, that is a very useful thing to appreciate. And I think economics helps you deeply with that. And finally, there's the idea of opportunity costs, the idea that making decisions involves trade-offs, you have to give up something. Those three things uh, haven't changed much over the years for me. Uh, and if anything, the middle one, the idea that markets are powerful and that emergent order is complex and that if you intervene there, you can often have unintended consequences. That just has gotten stronger and stronger in my thinking and hasn't changed. I don't think uh, if it's anything, it's gotten stronger. What has changed for me is the confidence I had in certain 
uh, the ability of statistics and data to bring about answers that are reliable. That's probably the biggest thing. Uh, I'll list a couple more, but that, that's the biggest thing. I used to believe that uh, my side had the facts on its side and the other side either had non-facts or had bad analyses or bad research. And I've come to realize that both sides think that their facts are good and that their analyses are good. And there really isn't that much to separate them in economics often in cert for certain questions. So questions like typically involving complex phenomena, questions like what caused the uh, Great uh, Recession of 2008, who or what is responsible for the financial crisis, did the stimulus work, what will be the effect of the minimum wage on jobs. These questions are very contentious. Uh, very smart people argue about them on each side of the issue. They all use uh, fancy econometric statistical techniques to try to provide evidence for their worldview. And I'd argue that um, that's not as scientific a process as I once thought. It's not as reliable. The truth doesn't emerge as easily as I had once thought. In fact, I think it's often just an exercise in uh, marketing which is a somewhat cynical but I think realistic uh, view. So that's one thing that's changed a lot for me. I've become much more skeptical of empirical evidence of a certain kind. Uh, the other thing that's changed is appreciation for the power of certain kinds of thinking uh, and certain uh, forces in our economy. I'll, one dramatic example would be the role of the financial sector. Back in 2007, some people were worried about the housing bubble and I, like many other people, many of them smarter than I am, uh, said, oh, well, the housing sector is only a small part of the economy. It's only a small part of investment. These bad subprime mortgages are never going to – they might be bad for the people who invested in them, either the people who bought them or the people who packaged them as securities. But, you know, that's just – that will just be a bad quarter, a bad half a year, or a bad month for those people, maybe a bad year. And we'll go on and it won't be a big deal. Well, I was totally wrong about that because I didn't appreciate the role of leverage, the role of borrowed money and debt and how that can create fragility and how that can then rebound into the rest of the economy. So that was a big wake-up call for me. I think other economists as well. Um, just didn't know much about it. Had to educate myself and used Econ Talk partly as a way to do that. Interviewed a lot of people about that, how that works. So those would be the biggest things I'd say that that I've come to uh, appreciate that I, that I need to reconsider. And in this long, perhaps infinite post mortem of the two thousand eight crisis, how much of your assessment of that do you think is attributable to the increasing? technological intertwining of the different areas of our economy? Because not only was things leveraged on top of other things and high, more highly correlated than was being papered over by these financial institutions, but we've got this this uh, economy that is, you know, now information travels so rapidly across the earth in the blink of an eye. Um I don't know, per, perhaps that fact, factors into um, more aggressive knee-jerk irrationality um, across the economic landscape. Um, how do you think the, the, the technological intertwining uh, affects the potential for these types of crises? Well, I'm not <clears> – sorry. I'm not sure how important that is. I, I think technology is important in, in its – role in transforming our economy and, the, and various parts of it and the disruptive effects of it and the wonderful effects of it I think are are huge now compared to 20 years ago. I think there's no doubt about that. I'm not sure how important they are though in worsening something like the Great Recession. In general, more information is good. Uh, for Take a dramatic example. Most of us now when we shop, we can shop online find prices very quickly. You don't have to get in our car and wander around, make multiple stops to see how much something costs. And that is really good for consumers. It, it reduces um, the opportunity for sellers to exploit us. Uh, it's just another form of competition. Yes, people can overreact to information. Uh, I, but I think it's actually a little more, more of a serious problem in politics. You know, uh, Twitter and Facebook and other social media, I think, have have amplified some of the emotional reactions we have to uh, worldwide events. And uh, I see that as in, in some ways more important than the economic side. So has, 
you know, when I think about my worldview that I talked about at the beginning, how it's shifted from the zero-sum nature of poker to the worldview of how software frames economics, I think of software as a much more positive-sum environment than poker. Like in poker, if I win, you have to lose. And um, this is how I often thought about the stock market when I was growing up, too. If it, you know, It's hyper-competitive. If I win, you have to lose. Um, has your framework of economics changed from being zero-sum or negative-sum to an increasingly positive-sum framework as the, the, the world has become more enveloped by software? Well, as an economist, we're taught this idea of mutually beneficial exchange. So if I buy something from you or you sell something to, to me, uh, we both think we're getting – it's voluntary. We both think we're getting a good deal and therefore we don't always – I was going to say therefore we're better off after we've made the deal. And of course, that's not always true. Sometimes you make a mistake. You think a product or a service is going to have an impact that it doesn't have, in, in which case you're worse off after you've made the deal. But in, in general, we expect uh, trades that we make, a- activity that we do economically to be beneficial or we wouldn't do it. And that's a, a belief at the heart of that view is the idea that people are fundamentally self-interested. They look out for themselves. They're rational. And it doesn't mean they're perfect maximizing calculating machines. It just means that they tend to do things that help themselves and they tend to avoid things that don't. Now, it's a very weak level of rationality and self-interest. I think it's true. Again, I want to emphasize it doesn't rule out mistakes. It also doesn't rule out people doing things to help other people. Of course, that gives us satisfaction or we might think it's the right thing to do. But in general, we try to do things that we think are, are going to be beneficial to us for a whole wide range of reasons. So, you know, that part is the – that's really in many ways the, uh, the, the built – the fund, most fundamental building block of economics. And from that comes the view that essentially economic life is not zero-sum. It's positive-sum that by my exchange of um, – uh, corn for your wine, I get something I didn't know how to make wine. You get something you weren't growing corn and we're both better off. So that's positive sum. I didn't take advantage of you. You didn't take advantage of me. Now, of course, the rate at which we exchange wine for corn could be better or worse for one of us than the other. There may be some role for negotiation or I may have lots of alternatives out in the world for those goods. That means that you really can't exploit me and even if you're the greatest negotiator in the world, it won't matter. So this idea that that exchange that econ- instead of calling it exchange, it's called economic activity. Economic activity, uh, what Adam Smith called the human propensity to truck, barter, and exchange, to give and take, to buy and sell, to hire and and to and to work together with people. This tends to make all the parties better off. And you say, well, I don't know if that's true. That seems a little bit Pollyannish. It's too optimistic. But if you look at human history, you see it in action. Uh, Human history, take the last 400 years, 300 years, 200 years, 100 years, 50 years, 25 years, doesn't matter. We see a world that has increasingly more people in it, which if the world were a zero-sum game would mean that each of us would have a smaller share. But in fact, it's the opposite. Each of us has a larger share than we had – than human beings had long – many decades and centuries ago. And in addition, as we go forward uh, and as we trade more with each other, as we open our borders, which is what we've done over the last 50 to 100 years, uh, we see more and more interaction economically across borders, not just within borders. And we see more and more people escaping poverty around the world. So there is a positive sum impact of economic activity that can't be denied and it can't be explained any way other than at the heart of it. The fact that we interact more and more with each other, and that is the source uh, of my, you know, fundamental optimism about human history and about our, our future. There are things that could change that, of course. Um, not, I'm not a fool, but I think overall uh, the path of human history is one toward longer life, better economic prosperity, less starvation, and it's a marvelous, glorious thing. What I love about econ talk is that. I find it to be a forum where silos really get eroded and, um, you know, whether you're having somebody who has written a novel or a treatise on on 
some classical notion of economics or a technologist come on the show. It is really a meeting of the minds. Um, but I am particularly curious about if there's a if you find that there is a gulf of belief between the technologists who come on your show and the people who are trained more in the academic science of economics? That's a great question. I, you know, I come out to uh, Silicon Valley. I come out to Stanford every summer for the last uh, 12 years or so, and I try to interact with uh, visionaries, entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and as guests, and just conversationally anytime I can because it's such a live and exciting place. And you know, in that encounter – uh, you you see a very very different worldview as you're, as you're talking about. Just take one extreme example. A lot of economists in the academic world think that we're in the middle of a period of great stagnation. That incomes, except for the very top few percent, are stagnant. No one's making any progress. And you come out here and you hear all these people saying, you know, we're going to solve all the world's problems in about six months. It's just about you know, just give us a little more time. We're going to we're going to change people's health dramatically. We're going to change people's access to all kinds of things. And you see it. It's happening. So one thing I notice about most technologists is that they are very optimistic uh, and they think that most problems can be solved by technology. So I take half of that. Uh, I'm also very optimistic. I think it's um, technology is a very powerful way to transform people's lives often for the better. But I don't see technology as, quote, solving all problems. Um, in fact, some might say the essence of economics is the view that there are there are um, there are no solutions; there are only trade-offs. Now, technology can give you uh, the equivalent of a free lunch. Technology can, you know, lower costs dramatically and and really push out the opportunities that everybody has. So, in that sense, it's not an economic phenomenon. It's a little bit different. But I, I'm not quite as optimistic as some of the people are out in the technology sector and in the technology world that. That uh, you know, perfection, nirvana, utopia is only a, a few um, years of Moore's law away. I think there's a little <laughs> bit of over optimism about problem solving, and part of that comes from the fact that so many problems do get solved through technology. That I think people become uh, a little bit worshipful of it, and uh, sometimes that optimism is is correct. So it's. But it's a different perspective, and it's um, I like to be exposed to it. I find it very uh, I find it very invigorating. Well, that quote that I think is from William Gibson or, or some other technology writer that the future is already here; it's just not evenly distributed yet. I think really wraps up the the point that you just made that things are changing and things are changing quite quickly, but the rate at which they propagate to the rest of the world is quite variable um, depending on the type of technology, depending on the uh, the different policies that are in place in, in the types of lo- localities that need these technologies in order to make a step change improvement. Um, so one specific step change improvement that I am curious about asking you about is something you've done several shows about, which is Bitcoin. And this this aspect of Bitcoin kind of gets um, ignored sometimes, but one of the big aims of Bitcoin is to drive the transaction cost of money transfer to zero. And uh, I think you would probably agree with me that the frictions of having a high cost of money transfer uh, are 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 quite quite great and uh, contribute to a lot of um, probably economic inefficiencies. So I'm curious to what degree you agree with that and what you think a world with frictionless money transfer would look like. Yeah, I think you know economists tend to use that word you just used, inefficiencies. And I think um, that's a very dry word that I think hides uh, the human side of, of economic activity, which is a shame. So my daughter lives overseas right now. And I want to sometimes – I want to buy her a present. So I told her she wanted to buy a particular book. She said, uh, yeah, I'll buy it and then you'll just give me the money. And I thought, yeah, great. And getting her that money is really hard. <laughs> there's, there's no um, really easy way to do that. And what Bitcoin uh, makes possible in theory or could make possible someday and a little soon, we might hope, 
is for that transaction to be cheap, to be make it easy. It's not just the monetary cost of it. It's the nuisance cost, the time, the time you have to spend to figure out how to transfer money in a different currency and, and how to get it into a bank and et cetera, et cetera. All of that is costly and it's, it's time, nuisance and money. And so if that were easy, uh, it's not just that the world would be less uh, inefficient. It would be that it would be easier to buy nice presents for my daughter. And that's what I think you have to keep the focus on. Somebody who goes overseas and works, say, and wants to send money home, you know, in the United States now, that's – I think it's still done a lot by Western Union. Is that right? Do I have that? I feel like I'm, I'm in a 1950s movie. But <clears throat> I think people – That's accurate. I think people still send money by wire uh, using Western Union, and that's – and it costs money. You have to pay to get that secure transfer. And, of course, you're willing to pay because you don't want to lose the money. You want your relatives back in wherever they are to be able to get access to that. And I think if we could make those costs smaller, the world would be a much better place for lots and millions and probably billions of people. So I think it has tremendous promise. Um, I think it matters a lot. And uh, it would be great, but we're not there yet. You mentioned this uh, framing a little bit earlier about how some people who are academic economists believe that we're in an age of stagnation. And one example of this is Tyler Cowen, who you had on your show, Econ Talk. He wrote a book called Average is Over, Powering America Beyond the Age of the Great Stagnation. And his claim is that Modern economies are becoming increasingly unequal, and the inequality is largely driven by how well humans can complement the functionality of their computers. Basically, if you are not a good complement to your computer, you are increasingly becoming perhaps obsolesced as a worker. To what degree do you agree with this thesis? Well, I think the last part's important for the long run, and we don't know when the long run will be. Is it five years from now, 10, 20, 50? I think it's true, and I had Kevin Kelly on talking about this as well recently in his book, The Inevitable. He deals with this, and I think it's true that eventually as artificial intelligence becomes more and more powerful and more and more prevalent in our lives that your ability to Use machines, use artificial intelligence, use your computer, use robots to make yourself more productive is going to be the key to having command over uh, lots of stuff. And that would be uh, meaning to have a wealth to be prosperous financially. So I think that part's true. I'm not sure it's true. That will be the only way to be successful. It's also going to be true, I think, in that world that human interaction and human contact is still going to be of value. I think that's still going to be extremely important. So people who can be empathetic, who can delight, who can charm, I think will still be of value. Uh, how that will be turned into money remains to be seen. I think the world's going to change a lot over the next 10, 20 years and we'll find out. But I don't think uh, that – Augmenting your skills with a computer is, quote, the only way that people, I think, would be financially successful, I think. But it's important. Uh, the other point is sort of what's going on now. And is it true that most people are just sort of treading water and only a small handful are, are doing very well? And, when you know, that title of Tyler's book is a brilliant title, Average is Over. What he's really getting at there is that uh, when we say the word average in everyday English, we mean typical, uh, the average American. Um an example I like to use uh, to illustrate the problems with this is that if, if we're in a room with, with uh, 50 people and a billionaire walks in the room, the average income of the room goes up a lot and it describes absolutely no one in the room. <laughs> the, the billionaire makes more than the average by quite a bit and the rest of us make nothing close to the average. So the average amount of income in the room does not is not average. It doesn't describe the typical person in the room because there's uh, there's such a skewness in the distribution. There's such a unequal distribution of income in the room that the that the arithmetic average, the so-called mean, is not descriptive of the typical person. And that that's an interesting insight. I think it's uh, true in some fields. It's somewhat more true now than it used to be in other fields. But I think it overstates the case. I don't think it's the case that 
a small group's doing incredibly well and the rest of us are doing sort of blah um, or not moving forward. I think the data are deceptive. Uh, I think demographic changes uh, mask what's going on. And we've had tremendous changes in the structure of the family over the last 40 years that has made it difficult to compare uh, averages across time when we're not looking at the same people. So I think that well, there's something to those arguments. I don't think it's as, as dramatic as some people make it out to be. Um, and then the question is going forward, uh, you know, how is that going to look? Is it just going to get worse, so-called worse or better or whatever word you want to use to describe this process? And there I think it just we just don't know. I think it's, um, it's best to be uh, open-minded about it. What I think we do know is that there will be a premium as there is now to education. And I do think that it's extremely important that we educate uh, or that at least everyone has a good chance to become educated. I was going to say we educate everyone, but I'm not sure I want we educating everyone. I think maybe people should be more responsible for their own education. We currently have a public school system in the United States that does a particularly bad job educating the poorest Americans. There are a lot of reasons for that. It's not just the school system's fault, but the current school system is not dealing with that very well. So if I had to pick the one single area where I'd want uh, true change, it would be that area because I think that is the key to allowing more and more people to flourish and to be part of a prosperous economy. You had Kevin Kelly on Econ Talk recently, as you just said, and I found that interview to be enlightening and his book, The Inevitable, to be equally enlightening. And um, as I read it, I felt that the spaces that he discusses in that book, like machine learning, virtual reality, several other things, these are going to cause immense change at a rate that might be going to be faster than we're prepared for. How how would you like to see policymakers respond to this? Well, that's a really interesting question. I think, you know, it's first place to start to answer it is to look at how we've responded to smaller changes that we've already endured or got to enjoy, depending on your perspective. So Kevin Kelly gives an – it's a great book, by the way, The Inevitable. He gives a, a really – a nice a page example. Turner. Yeah, it is a page turner. Uh, but he's just a, such an interesting mind. Um, he gives the example in the book of cell phones, how, you know, it used to be we didn't know what to do with cell phones when you were with a group of people and your phone rang. Well, I, and he said, well, we learned how to turn off the ringer. Or the manufacturers put a vibrate option on so that you could wouldn't disturb people. But that's a nice example, but at the same time, I think we really struggle socially, especially those of us over the age of, say, 30. Uh, we struggle socially with the fact that our phones are increasingly interacting and interfering with our face-to-face -face communication. And if you go to a social event now uh, or you walk down the street and you see people absorbed in their phones, um, it's kind of obvious that that's a big change. It's a big social change. How important it is, I don't know, but – we certainly are interacting with each other and with technology in a way that we didn't 20 years ago. And there are conventions that have changed as a result, norms, what's considered polite, what's considered rude. And we're still – those are going to evolve and change as technology changes. And those problems kind of take care of themselves more or less. I don't think you need a, a quote, policy change. Similarly, I'd say that the other example I would give that's dramatic – is it's pretty clear that people are watching a lot less television, but they're not spending less time in front of screens. They're just looking at a different kind of screen. They're looking at their cell phone. They're looking at their laptop. They're looking at their tablet. And again, there's no policy issue there for me. It's uh, just that as a human being, I have to think about how much of my time do I want to spend watching cat videos and uh, looking at refreshing my Twitter pay, Twitter timeline versus hanging out with my kids or reading a book or looking off at the sunset or whatever it is. And I think that problem or challenge or change is going to be trivial compared to what comes with really first-rate virtual reality. So as much time as my kids want to spend on YouTube – and my efforts to try to keep them doing something else, that's going to get a lot harder <laughs> when really first-rate virtual reality comes along. And I think there is going to be 
whether you want to call it a temptation or an opportunity or the – I mean, it's going to change a lot of things. I, one of the things I learned from reading Kelly's book and and interacting with an e-contact listener who kindly got me some exposure to VR, to virtual reality in advance of that interview is just how powerful that's going to be. I sort of thought it's just going to be people playing games in a more dramatic way and I'm not much of a game player. Um I thought, nah, it's not. It's nice, but it's actually going to change everything. Uh, and it's um, in many ways the way the internet has. The internet has changed everything in ways that we don't really appreciate, don't really under, fully understand, and haven't fully exploited. The opportunity to connect, you know, billions of people across space and time is just magnificent. And we're going to find all kinds of new ways to use that opportunity. And similarly, virtual reality is going to have a similar impact, I think. And it's it's foolish to try to predict how we're going to cope with it or what it's going to be, but it's going to be a big impact. Is, I mean, and one thing I think about is like the internet is, you know, has been such a thing to, to grapple with as a society. Um, but, you know, in, in the inevitable, Kevin Kelly is talking about these multitude of of trends that he identifies that seem like they are internet-sized trends and they're happening simultaneously um, alongside the internet itself, which continues to grow and change things. Uh, and, you know, I think a, a, a microcosm of one thing that, uh, in a, an event, we're going to see more things like this is, you know, we had the first self-driving car death a few weeks ago. Um, and I'll be curious to see how the policymakers respond to this. Um, but, do, do, I mean, do you have any insight into how policymakers can or how they should assemble around this this type of uh, event where the world of atoms is increasingly intersecting with the world of bits in a way that may be difficult or perhaps at least unprecedented to respond to? Well, I, just one thought before we try to answer that, which is that it's true a lot of these things, are, they're all happening at the same time, but and they're all happening faster than might have happened, change might have happened in the past, but it is, there are some limits to how fast change can happen. We can't borrow money from Mars. Uh, the Martians don't have a big venture capital sector that we could exploit to try to, say, move faster because there's still opportunity costs. There's still money spent researching virtual realities, money that can't be spent on researching, say, the Hyperloop or the driverless car or whatever it is. And as a result, you know, even though these things are all going to move forward at the same time, the speed at which they move forward is very unpredictable and is limited to some extent by just the amount of human time and resources we can apply to them. So that's the first thing. The second thing about policymakers, to get back to the heart of your question, you know, policymakers aren't really – equipped to deal with these issues, um, they have a natural tendency to listen to entrenched interests. So to take – I mean driverless cars are really dramatic, but just something that's you know much less dramatic, which would be uh, ride-sharing, Uber, Lyft, et cetera. You know, they've thrown up a lot of roadblocks to those – pardon the, the pun. They've thrown up a lot of roadblocks to – to that process uh, because vested interests such as cab companies or hotels in the case of Airbnb are threatened uh, in the pocketbook by it. And I understand that natural impulse. And so, you know, it makes it very transparent that policymakers don't look for the best policy. They are often human beings trying to figure out how to respond to the incentives they now find themselves facing. Uh, they still have to get reelected. They still have to finance that reelection with money. And they tend to listen to politically powerful people and not necessarily design the, quote, best policy. The The interesting case of driverless cars and uh, until recently drones is this, is this issue that just they're just kind of proceeding without any, any framework, which is the way I'd like to start and maybe continue. But that can't – isn't going to last long. It could. I, I started to say it can't. Of course it can. But the natural impulse of policymakers is to rein those kind of changes in if they particularly threaten existing – uh, owners of assets uh, or business models. So uh, it's just – it's fascinating to me how many disruptions take place that the policymakers sort of stand aside and say, oh, that's life. You know, got to deal with it versus those where they say, oh, that's the – oh, can't let that happen. And uh, there's no – I don't think particularly good rhyme or reason for it other than often uh, the political expediency of it. Well, I, you know, I do think that uh, some of these – tech giants are being 
very deliberate, de- deliberately gun shy in how fast they're deploying these types of technologies. For example, I think we'll see Amazon be very, very slow about how they deploy drones because they don't want a drone running out of battery in midair, falling on somebody's head and, and giving them a concussion. Um, so, I mean, uh, th- that actually brings me to a, a question I had for you about internet monopolies. Um, th- these giant internet companies like Amazon or Google or Facebook, um, do you think that we should be regulating these potential internet monopolies more severely, or are the monopoly profits of a Facebook or a Google, are they a well-deserved consequence of fundamental technological breakthroughs? Well, it's a mix. Obviously, there's a mix of luck and skill in any any part of life. Uh, it's not just technology. It's not just the internet. But certainly with the internet, you know, things could have come out differently. And so there is a sense in which Jeff Bezos or uh, Mark Zuckerberg Sergey Brin, Larry Page, that they're not they're not entitled to all the money, that, that, that they didn't just earn it through their skill. And there's also a question of if we take it away from them or regulate their their businesses, does that discourage the next person from coming along? And the answer is, yeah, a little bit. Uh, probably not that much. Some. Depends how big the, the tax is. Depends how much we regulate it, of course. But my general impulse, uh, as you might suspect, is to allow market processes to respond to those situations. The question is, is that realistic? Is that reasonable? Is it reasonable to think? So, you know, when Google was started, they weren't the first internet search business. No one had any idea what internet search really was going to lead to. No one could have imagined, I don't think, even Paige or Bren, that that Google would become the enormous company it has, that its span and reach would be as large as it is. Uh, there wasn't Gmail, just to take a trivial example originally. Um, so that just exploded in all kinds of unpredictable and really mostly wonderful ways, at least for now. I could see – I know there are a lot of people who don't like Google and obviously the potential for abuse is uh, is there. And that would argue that we do need some kind of regulation. But my general impulse is to allow them to uh, protect their own brand name through good behavior – and to the extent that they deviate from that, they will be punished uh, by the marketplace. Now, is that realistic given that it's hard to start another Google? And the answer is I don't know. Hard to know. Uh, certainly change in uh, – right now it looks like, well, there's just Google and Facebook and Amazon and they're going to last forever and be really rich and be these multi-billion dollar companies and no one can compete with them. And yet – that's what people said, you know, 20 years ago and 15 years ago about companies that are not so important anymore. Companies like IBM that faced a massive uh, government monopoly uh, lawsuit uh, over their so-called uncompetitive behavior. So I think the most important thing is to keep – by far is to keep the marketplace open to potential entrants to make sure that these companies don't use the political process to twist it in their own favor – to make it harder for new entry, new entrants and new companies to start. Um, and um, I'd like to let that go forward for a while before we do anything to cripple them. Do you think that the, the Microsoft trial in the 90s, was that a mistake on the part of the government? Yeah, that was another one. Um, you know, it looked like Microsoft was just going to run the world the way we feel that Google runs the world now or Facebook runs the world. And it turned out not to be true. That doesn't mean it's it's always going to be the case that big companies, therefore, we don't have to worry about them and therefore it's all going to turn out okay. But, you know, Microsoft was thought to be uh, the company that was going to control the internet through their browser. Um, I think their browser was called Internet Explorer. That was Netscape. We had – I mean it's amazing how quickly that world changed and what was turned out to be important wasn't so important. (laughs) Right. Right. So it's really – I mean they didn't get the mobile phone. Yeah. Oops. Missed that one. Uh, So, you know, the world is – Incredibly dynamic, and I have a lot of more faith in the dynamism of human creativity than I do in the ability of uh, bureaucrats to figure out what the right level of competition is. Having said that, there is something unusually powerful about you know a company that knows where you live, knows what you buy, 
uh, reads all your emails, your correspondence. I, I don't know if that's going to last the way it is now. So we'll we'll see. So the uh, more a more modern uh, example of a company that might or might not be regulated is uh, Uber, which you mentioned, and the gig economy more broadly. You know the 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 policy discussions that are happening around these. You know, you mentioned this in the Tim O'Reilly episode. You had the policy discussions seem kind of um, not really going after the things that are relevant. They talk about things like W two versus W nine employees. These may or may not be the types of regulate regulatory <laughs> discussions we actually need to be having. Is there a way to regulate the gig economy in an effective way? And do you think that we actually need to start imposing that? Or are we still too early in the gig economy to actually have a productive discussion around what needs to be regulated? Yeah, so let's put aside the question of whether taxis versus Uber, just the question of how Uber treats, say, its its drivers. Um, So I take Uber – I don't know, and I probably take 20 a year or so, maybe 25, I don't know. So whenever I do, I always talk to the drivers just because I'm curious and I also think it's a nice thing to do unless they don't want to talk to me. Um, but often they're almost always are happy to talk. And a couple things have you know emerged from that small sample of, say, 25 drivers. First is there's a huge range of the type of people who drive. Some are driving – Many, many hours a day, every day, trying to desperately make a lot of money or a decent amount of money or even just some amount of money. And others are doing it, you know, occasionally they're retired, they're doing it for fun, you know, because they like to meet interesting people and they drive around. Uh, They're doing it while they're waiting for, say, funding for a startup, while they're waiting for some other job to come through. Uh, Many of them drive for multiple uh, providers. They drive for Uber and Lyft. Um, there's a new startup, I think, coming in New York City that I had a driver who's – he's working for Uber, but he's giving their day's data to this other startup, which is trying to find, find out a way to treat drivers better than Uber is and and riders. So there's a huge – it's a very dynamic and um, and exciting time. Now, that's the, that's the positive side. Here's the negative side. The negative side is – and I should have one more thing, which is – you know, if Uber doesn't have any drivers, they don't make any money. So they got to treat the drivers well enough to keep them in business, and they got to treat their riders well enough that they don't want to take their own cars or cabs or bikes or walk. So that's those constraints are very powerful, and so my that's that's what drives my basic view that the government should pretty much stay out of it. Um, now, having said that, uh, a lot of drivers are very unhappy to work for Uber because what's happened over time is that Uber has lowered their rates, that they charge riders, yay, but I'm a rider. As a driver, it can be very painful, especially if you invest in a nice car, say, that gets decent mileage because you're expecting to be an Uber driver and you make your calculations. Then you find out Uber changes their fares or changes the percentage that they reward drivers with per fare. And all of a sudden, it's a lot less attractive and that's not fun. I totally understand that. But I think over time, Competition between Uber and Lyft and whoever else can come along, and there's a bunch of them all trying to get a piece of that action, is going to be the fundamental force. That competition is the fundamental force that protects both riders and drivers. Now, is it going to be the case there are going to be some some drivers who are have very hard lives, and I'm sure there are, uh, who, who for various life circumstances find themselves working long, long hours and not making as much money as they thought, and that, that's not fun, and it's painful, and I, I totally understand that. Uh, the question is, is there a way to, quote, fix that or to make it better? Um, is there something, you know, a lot of people say we should, they don't often don't offer, often they don't offer benefits. There's no health insurance. But, of course, it's a free world. You choose to work for them, and it, what, what people are really complaining about is that unfortunately there's some people whose best alternatives are not so attractive. This is the, this is really the essence of many many issues that come up in economic policy. You have something that's unattractive. Somebody making eight dollars an hour. That's not a great life. Uh, that's sixteen thousand dollars a year full time. You can't live in most American cities on that amount of money. So the people who are doing that, uh, they're not starving to death. They're either living with someone else. Uh, a spouse or they're rooming with other people to try to reduce their costs or they're working multiple jobs. And that's not fun. We all understand that. 
And But that's the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem isn't that their employer is cruel or exploiting them. The fundamental problem is that that's their best alternative. And so I come back to my point earlier, which is if we want to help those folks rather than just saying it looks like it helps them but actually does help them, I think the best way to help them going forward is certainly to improve the amount of skills they have, is to improve the schooling they receive, is to improve the education that we provide to the extent we provide it through a public system that gives them better alternatives, that gives them a higher opportunity to, to make more money, that's the right way to fix the problem, at least going forward. For the people right now, many of the things that people propose to make their lives better are not going to actually make them better. It's going to make them harder for them to find work. Not going to be as many opportunities for people with low skills. So I, I'm always want to emphasize that if you think there's something sad in the world that you want to improve, first make sure that what you're favoring actually does make those people's lives better. I think that's just incredibly important. Hmm. So if if the the plans of Uber and Lyft to automate even the driver's jobs and the truck driver's jobs, if those come to fruition, many people have this idea that we're going to be moving to this model where these people don't have any alternatives. Even the $8 an hour job is gone, and these people have no alternatives. So we turn to the basic income discussion. Have you heard a compelling implementation strategy for basic income? And wh- where do you think we are in uh, the theoretical discussion around basic income? Well, I think it's an interesting issue that – there are some economic changes that are going to be so pervasive and have such profound, large effects that that our current set of um, economic opportunities is not going to be very attractive for large numbers of people. So, you know, the driverless car uh, and particularly driverless truck, which could put hundreds of thousands, probably millions of people out of work would be an incredible thing for those of us who are not in that business but who are going to benefit from the fact that it's going to be safer. We're going to benefit from the fact that it's going to be cheaper to ship goods, uh, a lot cheaper. Uh, We're going to benefit from the fact that there's going to be less congestion on the roads uh, because cars can move more quickly, we hope. So all this is going to be great for most people, but for a small and not tiny, but it's, but a percentage of the population, it's going to be devastating. Um, all those benefits I talked about aren't going to be much consolation if they can't find any work. And I think the issue is is that the skill sets of the people who do those things, who drive taxis, drive Uber, and who drive trucks, uh, their next best alternative, as you said, it's not clear what that's going to be. It might be very low paying. And I think the real issue there is an issue of, of self-esteem and pride and, and meaning in life. And I think the challenge we have, and this is a challenge I think is going to cut way, you know, across many more things than just our job, but also just how we spend our time. Uh, you know, to take an example, I love the idea of being able to meet my my daughter uh, through virtual reality in an art museum in say Venice and, or in say Rome or. London or Paris and, and to explore it with her. She's she's knows a lot more about art than I do. And the idea that we could do that through virtual reality is is exhilarating. Um, I don't know if I want to spend sixteen hours a day or eighteen hours a day or twenty hours a day in in, in the virtual world. And if we end up doing that, what what's that gonna be like as human beings? What's the world gonna be like? I mean, I love I love to watch a, a good three-minute tear-jerking YouTube video that combines music and and words and ideas that moves me or inspires me or makes me laugh or makes me cry. And I can do it for a long time. I can, I can, I can do that for 45 minutes and do it for an hour. If I do that for 12 hours a day, what's my life going to be like? You know, it's kind of like I love football, uh, but if I watch three football games on Sunday – and nine hours of my life have been <laughs> devoted to uh, large people damaging themselves for my entertainment. And I always feel so good at the end of the night. I was like, you know, I think I should have done something different with my time. So I think that whole question is is often ignored. And I think the issue of basic income or guaranteeing a minimum income for people, you know, it sounds like a compassionate gesture. I'm, I'm not 100% sure that that's the ideal strategy for coping with the fact that the uh, world's going to be both economically and perhaps spiritually challenging for people going forward. You know, it's kind of like it just reminds me a little bit of uh, Brave New World and Soma. You know, it's like, oh, here's some consolation, here's some goodies. Now, 
We don't want anybody to starve to death. I don't think people starve to death. I think there's private charity. There's all kinds of ways, I think, to give people uh, ways to avoid you know, horrible poverty. But I think the deeper question is going to be where we get our meaning from, where we get our spiritual texture of our life, and what's going to make life feel good. Uh, is it just? Is it going to be enough just to you know have money and buy stuff if I don't have a job for forty years? Is that going to? Oh, don't worry, we've got you taken care of. We have a we have a check for you every Monday. Just come down to the government office, and that I don't know. That's uh, there's something a little bit uh, depressing about that to me. Uh, and whether that's for me or my children or somebody else's children, it just doesn't seem to me that's – I mean that's like a desperation stopgap measure. Now, having said that, we already do that, of course. We have lots of things that we – ways we give people money who have struggled in life and there are worse things that we do with government money for sure. So it's not the, it's not, it's not the worst thing that we do. The question is, is that it, you know, if we move to a basic income strategy, would it replace or would it just lay on top of what we already have? So as a replacement, I think it's a pretty good idea. On top of, it's a horrible idea. Mm-hmm. And even as a replacement, I think we'd have to be aware of the fact that it doesn't really solve all the problems to make sure that people have enough food to eat is a good thing. But to say that all of their financial well-being will come from their fellow taxpayers or their ta- taxpayers living near them, I don't know. I don't, I don't – it doesn't – seem like the greatest policy to me. I'd rather see other ways of helping people who are desperately poor. There's another theme of econ talk that I'm a big fan of, which is kind of the idea that we have today massive amounts of data available and many of the studies, whether we're talking about academic studies or economic studies or studies about health, the studies of the past have relied on relatively paltry amounts of data. And we're really finding out just how paltry they were with, for example, the lack of ability to reproduce studies that have been done. Um, And there was also like, I, I really enjoyed your episode about medical reversal recently, which is where medical practices that are ineffective or harmful, they're discovered by the healthcare community and reversed. And, and this is like proliferate. Um, And, you know, it, it really begs the question, you know, if we have a lack of data, if we cannot make a conclusive judgment about something, then is, should we go with the judgment that we come to with the, with, you know, the, if we say we, okay, we need, you know, we need uh, five times the amount of data that we actually have to come to a a judgment, should we just use that the 20% of the total data set that we actually need? Will that, you know, get us somewhere close to the actual judgment we have? And I, I guess I'm, I'm curious, how do you think we should approach these types of questions where, you know, we have we have some drug that maybe we should test on somebody, uh, but we don't feel we, we have enough data? And uh, what are the ways that um, that that implementation uh, implementation of certain policies occurs where uh, it, it actually ends up harming the end consumer because we do not have uh, the the requisite amount of data. Well, if you're an EconTalk listener, you know one of my big themes is humility. And I think we need to be a lot more humble about what we can get from small or big data. I think big data is a potentially imp- will improve some things, but it won't improve everything and it's not magic. And I think there's a lot of... Um, misplaced optimism about the fact that if we have more data, we can solve more problems. I like the Nassim Taleb quote, uh, big data, big mistakes. Uh, To some extent, having lots of data doesn't solve some of the fundamental problems of causation and connections between forces in a complex world. And I think there's a lot of just blind hubris and optimism that's just going to fix everything. Of course, most of that comes from people who, who... are likely to benefit from it. So I think from using it and having power, and I think you should always keep that in mind when you hear people talk about how great it is or how these experts, once they get the data, they'll be able to figure out the best way to do X, Y, or Z. A lot of times there's no way to find the best way. It's better to have a thousand people experimenting and trying different things and letting people make their own decisions. So I think the temptation of big data, the most dangerous part of it is probably the idea that we just need some elite statisticians to figure out stuff and then we'll just know what to do. And I don't think most of the interesting problems in the world come down to that kind of uh, solution. And I think we need to be very careful about 
trusting or being overconfident about these kinds of applications of data to our problems. So um, I think we're going to get some understanding that we don't have. I think there are some good things coming, but I think we have to be careful not to overestimate the the uh, power of it. Mm. Okay, so I, I want to conclude with uh, just kind of a offbeat question. You've had uh, so many people on the show that are interesting, opinionated, often conflicting personalities. Who are the two guests that you have had on the show separately that you think would disagree the most? (laughs) Hmm. Uh, I don't know if I can answer that question. Uh, It's a good, it's an interesting question. Um, You know, I've had people very widely uh, differ in their ideological views. So, you know, just to pick one way of answering a question, you know, Milton Friedman, who I interviewed back in 2006, shortly before he died, uh, he and Joseph Stiglitz, another Nobel Prize winner, they don't see the world the same way. Um, And uh, Jeffrey Sachs and William Easterly don't see the world the same way. Easterly thinks that aid has all kinds of unintended consequences and does it to poor people around the world and often makes them worse off. And Sachs is very optimistic about what we could do if we would just spend more money. Uh, and occasionally, you know, of course, I've had guests on who disagree with each other. Um, so uh, that's really fun for me. I really enjoy being the uh, moderator, not in a debate, which I think is not productive, but in a conversation, which I think is the way we learn the best. Uh, it's not about who can score the cleverest points or gotcha to their opponent, but rather who can defend their ideas in a thoughtful way when pressed. And I think that's the way we as listeners learn, and I think it's, that's very, that's very, very powerful. So, uh, you know, it's I'm the common thread between those interviews. So I, I'm constantly listen, listening to them argue in my head uh, with each other, even though they don't face go face to face or phone to phone. Yeah, and I think that's actually one of your strengths is that you are quite good at being confrontational uh, with your guests' ideas, uh, even when I mean, you you do it in a diplomatic way, but you are you are confrontational. You do challenge their ideas. Um, and that's, you know, in contrast to some, like, like, and sometimes, you know, I do shows where I feel almost like I'm presenting a podium for the guest to, to just come and, and talk about his or her ideas. When, in fact, I think I learn from you and Econ Talk that there is often even more value for the listener and actually for the guest also to, to challenging those ideas rather than just being a podium for them. Yeah, well, when I, when I, have a guest on that I know I'm not going to agree with, um, and it really doesn't matter. Even when you know when I agree with a guest, now I try. And when I was younger, certainly when the show was younger, I was often uh, guilty of sometimes cheerleading the guests who 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 agreed with me. And now I try to challenge them as well. So I think what I what I have in mind when I'm doing those interviews is I'm trying to ask the questions that I think my listeners would want to ask, especially if they disagree with that person. So uh, I'm trying to anticipate those questions. I'm also trying to ask the questions when I think my listeners are confused. Uh, So I try to ask the clarifying questions that I think listeners would want to ask. And sometimes I don't have to try very hard because I don't understand it. So I just ask, you know, my real is, you know, people say to me, was was it a good episode? Or they'll say, I didn't, let me say it a different way. Someone, Someone will say, I hated so-and-so. <laughs> he was awful. I couldn't listen to him for more than 10 minutes for one of the, you know, it was the only time I ever turned Econ Talk off. And I always want to say, well, you missed a chance to learn something. You know, I, I didn't agree with him either. I would have, I didn't, after 10 minutes, I was annoyed also. But I, here's what I learned. And I can all, if I don't, if I don't find a nugget or an insight out of each episode, to me, it's a failure. Ideally, there's more than one. Uh, you know, you hope. But one's pretty good. Nothing nothing wrong with one. So if I learn something, a new way of thinking, a new set of ideas, a new framework, a new way to examine something, a f- set of facts I didn't know, a phenomenon I, phenomenon I wasn't aware of, then I think the episode has been a success for me, in which case I hope the same is true for my listeners. Yeah, it's, it's, sometimes it's quite an inconvenient thing that you learn. Like the <laughs> the the Will McCaskill episode about about uh, effective altruism, I found it incredibly frustrating how compelling his arguments were. 
Yeah, um, no, it's it's a very interesting set of viewpoints. I don't agree with all of them. Uh, some of them I do think are incredibly important, and some of them I disagree with. Uh, but that's what's fun is sparring with a a really smart person who's got a, a really different way of looking at the world than than you do, or one that you haven't seen before, or one you haven't been exposed to, and uh, it makes you think. What a novel yeah. experience. Definitely. Okay, Russ. Well, I want to respect your time. Thank you so much for all your work with Econ Talk, and thanks for being gracious enough to come on to Software Engineering Daily. Uh, you did a great job. It was a pleasure uh, talking with you. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash S-E daily. Thanks again, Symphono.